This is Ingewikkeld Sessions, the podcast. Organized by Ingewikkeld, each month you'll get a live stream on YouTube and a podcast on the same topic. That topic is always related to software development in one way or another. If you don't want to miss a thing, subscribe to both our YouTube channel and podcast. Let's start. Okay, welcome to this uh, new episode of the Ingewikkeld Sessions podcast. Today we are going to b- talk about uh, hidden complexity in software. Um, with me are uh, David, uh, Barry and uh, Mike. Um, we talked about uh, well this topic uh, two weeks ago uh, during the live session. And um, well, I want, would like to summarize with you what we talked about uh, before. Um, we, we covered too many topics uh, to, to summarize everything, I think, uh, during the session. Um, so if you are willing to uh, re-watch this session or um, just watch it again, um, you can easily go to our Patreon and uh, sign up for just uh, a few euros a month. Uh, you have full access to our archive and uh, you will be able to uh, to see what we discussed. Um, so what I first wanted to start with... Um, we we talked about um, how we could assess risks uh, risks on on uh, particular uh, new features we need to implement and how to not uh, be overcomplicating things or uh, underestimating uh, particular um, uh, topics. Does anyone of you want to say something about that particular subject? Uh, well, I can definitely recommend uh, going full on for exploration. Uh, something which we actually discussed during the session is there's the problem space, the solution space, and you really want to fully explore both sides of the coin. Yeah, and I think it was David wha- who mentioned during the session that we uh, that you were doing a lot of uh, spikes during the, yeah. uh, the the exploration. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so at bound, uh, kind of going off the back of that exploration. So just understanding exactly the problem domain that you have um, and understanding the fact that software is supposed to get simpler over time, uh, not more complicated. So do a messy, dirty spike, learn as much as you can, get some kind of proof of concept of of the particular thing that you're you're spiking at that time, and then kind of moving forward with your, your actual development upon those lessons learned. Yeah, especially don't forget to throw away the code and start anew. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Also. 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 Yep. This. Don't, don't make your prototype your production code. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which we see often. I'm sure in a pretty much every business. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, try to discover as much as possible. Um, and uh, I think uh, Barry, that also applies to the um, to the topic of uh, interaction design, which is your um, expertise, right? Yeah. And as we uh, as we I think we also mentioned that that doing spikes beforehand and and um, a lot of experience I, I recently have is don't build before you see the actual data coming out of an API, especially if it's an external API. So there can be great specifications or um, example uh, API or it's coming from a UAT server. I really like to see the actual data coming from production before I uh, work with an interface or build it up. Yeah. Okay, and I think one of the things we also discussed uh, during the session was um, how to deal with um, non-specified 
data or code, which was also an interesting thing. Um, I'm not sure if you remember. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, so if we're if we're building off the back of let's say an API or we're inheriting some code that, that yep. we don't have ownership over, uh, what I particularly liked is um, Barry, you you uh, mentioned your it's something within your perceived circle of influence, mm. um, and uh, yeah, that's something that. I experience a lot, but don't really ever process in my mind, which is, yeah, consuming an API is essentially um, masquerading as that fun functionality being yours and being within your system uh, as far as your clients are concerned. So they, they don't care that you didn't write it. If it's broken, it's your responsibility. Mm -hmm. So having an appreciation for the libraries you use in your software, the APIs you consume, the companies you purchase, if if uh, if you get the code through an M and A process, yeah, or anything like this, yeah. But and we think we, I think we also covered. Uh, I think it was your statement, Mike, that um, you should also make your uh, stakeholders aware of the of the risk uh, such API or data uh, might have on on your project, right? Yeah, definitely. Especially if you adopt an API that is uh, under-maintained and that can be uh, poorly documented, doesn't have a schema or any sort of guarantee that you have, then it doesn't only mean that you run the risk of having trouble implementing it, but you will also run the risk of having trouble maintaining it. Because if they're not willing to provide you with basically any proof that it works, how can you trust them that they will continue to work? Yeah, okay, so... Uh, people should be aware of the risk of, of this particular uh, API or external dependency you have. And if that, that might apply to all uh, kind of external dependencies, um, not even APIs or data, but also people dependencies. Yeah, people, IaaS as well, you know, as we've had problems with uh, IaaS providers in the past. Uh, um, I, sh I won't name any, but uh, with a yeah. few, uh, one in particular, quite big Dutch IaaS provider, um, and you know it's it's their problem when something goes down, but but actually you know it's it's our we're the ones that feel the grunt of it. Yeah, and then we also talked about uh, I, I think it was your statement about uh, inherited op optimism about uh, yeah. risk assessments uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, when trying to uh, do estimates on on a particular new feature or improvement on your on your code base. Do do you remember how that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, so it's kind of the idea that we're we're doomed from the start um, because uh, first of all, if we have a particular project that we haven't scoped out accurately from you know methods like uh, a spike or proper due diligence in the product side prior to things kind of reaching the engineering table, um, assuming that that hasn't already happened and and it often doesn't. There's also the the idea that we we are inherently optimistic in our time and our productivity on a particular day. And when it comes to measuring something, we do look at what it would take of us in our you know super caffeinated, completely isolated environment, which we seldom get in the, in the working world. Yeah. So um, so we do those estimations. We shoot ourselves in the foot by being too optimistic on that. And then there's the scope creep of us finding things along the way or, or realizing the true complexity of the, the thing we're trying to build along the way. And always the, the, the problem that, you know, the estimation that you give is the first estimation you give is the one that people remember. Yeah. And often the one that's already been communicated to a client or to another stakeholder or to the board yeah. or something like this. And then, and then you have uh, lots of problems. 
problematic aspirations can also come from a negative emotional space, uh, such as a team member un who doesn't feel comfortable for sharing their second thoughts about the situation, or a team uh, that doesn't feel comfortable exploring the space because they are under a lot of time pressure. Uh, startups can have these kind of issues where they just forego on the exploration of the problem space and uh, suffer from similar estimation issues, but then from the other side of the, of the emotional coin. That's a really good point. We didn't touch upon that kind of psychological safety that it takes in order to really kind of be courageous with your estimations or with uh, what it takes to get the right estimation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you might have a boss or a boss of a boss that comes in and wants something immediately. And we sometimes feel a little bit pressured to provide that answer. Even the courage to say, I don't know, is really important, uh, especially in the estimation game, uh, where you just say, I can't give you an estimate because I just don't know. Yeah. But that takes a lot of courage to actually get together. Yeah, I was uh, I was recently asked if if the project that we're doing now, so we're we're building a, a uh, planning software uh, dependent on multiple external sources like uh, operating uh, they call it operating system, but it's it's a data warehouse with all of the tracking all of the ships movements, a lot of external dependencies. Can you have your whole application ready by September next year? Honestly, that was the question, <laughs> <laughs> and. I said, well, we haven't even reached the first API. We're not seeing any data come out yet. We haven't built anything yet. I don't know how fast my team is, how good the the, the um, refinements go. So that was, uh, yeah, yeah, I think we can make it. Yeah, okay, because we don't know. We, yeah, we don't know, so, and, and um, that's, we talked about the, the three knobs you can twist, like time and, and, and scope. Uh, yeah, uh, and and the quality, uh, in this case, yeah, don't expect a lot of quality if you if you only have one dev team and you want to have it ready in a year. Yeah, um, well, you can either delimit your releases by feature or by time, but not by both. No. Um, uh, yeah, the that I most people and I think the industry just generally prefers by time. So having these very frequent releases not building up something that drives true value or true in whoever's perspective value to the, the customer, but yep. actually something that just safely evolves the software incrementally um, is what we, we currently prefer. But there's still people that want that kind of feature delimited release and educating people that we need to be more like buses uh, than a chauffeur in, in that the bus is going to leave on time all the time. And if you're on it, you're on it. And if you're not, you'll be on the next one. Yep. Um, rather than something that's just going to wait for you. And then you have no idea when it's going to leave. You don't know the schedule anymore. Um, but there will be, you know, a, a bigger kind of feature coming out at the end. Yeah, but it's, uh, it, it's also uh, about teaching your uh, colleagues outside tech uh, to understand the complexity of, of the environment you're working with, right? And also to help them understand why certain um, problems aren't uh, easy to, to solve. I think we mentioned during the session uh, something about uh, rendering PDFs, which is easy, right? Uh, <laughs> because we are doing it all the time. Um, it's simple, just a put button in your browser. How hard can it be? I think I nearly covered all statements we made about this uh, uh, during the session. Think so? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, anything to add, uh, Mike or Barry? 
Uh, now, I think you can crank over the world basis. Uh, PDF is such a wonderful example because it's completely ubiquitous, uh, but people generally don't realize the complexity of even finding out when the page should end in a PDF. If you ever had to uh, make a table in a PDF file while rendering and figure out when to cut off the table or to prevent the table from just going right completely onto the next page, then you'll feel my pain. It's, it's a really simple thing, but it, it's sometimes quite hard to you know, make happen. And I don't know how many people actually know that a PDF is a proprietary format. You can't even intervene with the format itself. Everything we do with generating PDFs is reverse engineered most of the time, especially the open source tools. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, I, I know there are different versions of PDFs, and uh, but I didn't know that it's a proprietary format. Uh, Okay. Yeah, it's heavily gated, and it's just such a. We, uh, I think, we're we're. It's like the new Internet Explorer, right? We're going to be very happy when PDFs are gone, uh, for good, and we have a better format. I, I remember when I once I worked at the printer, uh, at the large printer company. Um, PDFs were a very common format to communicate between printers, but it's actually not designed uh, for the purpose we are using it nowadays. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just designed to, in, uh, to be an instruction. And that's one, one thing I think we also covered. Um, uh, systems are not designed for this particular purpose. Um, and, and PDFs is maybe a great example for this. Uh, not many people might be aware of this, but we, also we are also dealing with it was not designed for this partic uh, particular purpose. Um, uh, how should we... Um, well, make our colleagues uh, outside the tech teams aware of this. Um, should we just communicate th with them or talk to them? Or are there other techniques we could apply to, um, to make them aware of the complexity we are dealing with? Well, interesting. What you said is it's not built for, for the purpose. So you, I think you mean, uh, or, or do you mean the purpose of what you're using it for? So yeah. that's that's... Um, in that sense, users never cease to amaze me is how they use your software or what kind of um, shortcuts they can find uh, in your software just to make their own process more efficient. Or um, And, and that's, uh, that's amazing how they can find uh, loopholes or different paths in your application that you didn't build it for, actually. Yeah, or requirements that uh, are enforcing you to uh, use your software in a different way uh, you didn't intend to build it for. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how should we, well, yeah, at least make people aware of that particular problem? Uh, I personally say pull them in. Uh, I think David it was who mentioned that, he's that you're doing a deep dive with some of the non-technical stakeholders every once in a while, not to really... Uh, open up an IDE and check out what the code is like, but do give them a look underwater or uh, under the hood of what's going on, and especially also the complexities of the interactions of the different parts. Uh, I also think it's important for people to remember that everything you design, you design with your best intentions at that moment. However, you don't have a, gl a, a glass ball that you can look into the future and see what it should do next year or what it should do the year thereafter. Mm. Yeah, that empathy building. It works both ways, of course, but you know, making sure that other people uh, understand the intricacies of, of 
software development and true cost of software development, just as much as you want to make sure that your R&D teams understand the implications of their decisions on, let's say, the sales team, who uh, sometimes will be quota carrying. You know, Sometimes that feature means a signed deal, and that signed deal means a commission that they're, they're relying on. You know, So building that, that cross-department empathy makes you move as one unit rather than these kind of pulling forces. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah, I, I think I have did had the I had that experience uh, multiple times where people from other departments were just yelling at the development team, "Why are you making this so complex?" Um, or <laughs> uh, how hard can it be just to send an email with an attachment? Uh, we have done this a thousand times, and I, I think that's all. Those are all examples of, of a lack of empathy uh, between mm. teams. But the other way around um, might also apply. Uh, development teams yelling at the at the sales team, why are you not selling this product? Uh, we're nearly out of money and we need to go on. Mm. Or why are you selling this feature that we haven't built yet? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, mm. absolutely. That, that, and that's often a, a big one. And, uh, and when you have those questions that start with why, and they're a little bit kind of loaded and they, they, there's some passion in there. It's also often the case that they may have just not been given the opportunity to go through those seven stages of grief on a decision. The seven stages always lead, always end with acceptance, right? Yep. But they start with anger, denial, and all of these other horrible things. But when you have decision-making that doesn't bring in all of your stakeholders, it means that you've had a few people that have pulled their hair out, they've you know, assessed like the the state of of rendering PDFs right now. Yeah, they've asked themselves that. They've shouted, "Why can't we do this easy? Like, why can't this be simpler?" Um, but because they didn't bring in the others, they're at this calm state of acceptance now, and they're listening to their other stakeholders uh, going through it basically. But they, you know, they haven't brought them through the process with them. I think trust is also an especially important part there. That if you are a stakeholder and you don't understand why something isn't just as simple as you think it would, and your expert says that it isn't as simple, then you don't have to question them. You can just trust them because they are an expert, not for nothing. Uh, if you're ever on YouTube and you find the uh, short clip, The Expert, I can definitely recommend watching that one for a great example of that. Okay. Yeah, but so you, ma you made a valid point of, of bringing, bringing stakeholders along with you on that journey. I mean, as soon as possible, uh, um, uh, try to design with your developer, uh, sorry, with your uh, customers and stakeholders and end users. And like I think we, we mentioned this, ask the five Ws and the one H um, to really dive into, well, you're, you're asking for a PDF and because your frame of reference is a PDF because that's all the applications that you use generate PDFs, but why do you really want this feature and, and, and can we help you otherwise that's even better for long-term use, et cetera? Yeah, but people are still connected with their way of working in some yeah. way and you will have to change uh, your maybe your customer's pro working process uh, and that might be quite tough. Yeah, that, that, psycholo that, that, that psychological uh, effect is, is the most interesting, I think, of... of um, at least my end of, of working with IT, um, creating designs and, and really talking to users is um, that psychological effect and trying to change their behavior, which is always met with uh, resistance. But um, 
if you can see that it benefits their work, especially if you're building software for professionals where they have to iterate on a certain task many times a day, if you can squeeze out a few clicks, that makes a lot of sense. Instead of um, um, the, like the, the, the shopping cart, what you go through maybe once or twice a day, um, yep. really squeezing out a second for a repetitive task makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting because uh, people generally have a tendency to fall for their own biases and, va and fallacies. Um, I think you kind of described the survivor, uh, the survivor bias, uh, which reminds me of a quote of the Second World War when they wanted to fortify uh, the airplanes and see where they add armor. And they looked at planes that came back and where the bullet holes were to add armor at the places where the bullet holes were. Until one smart guy, whose name I absolutely forgot, remembered, wait, these are the planes that came back, that actually survived. <laughs> so they didn't need to add armor in the wings because those planes came back. They needed <laughs> to put armor on the other bits of the plane. That weren't hit, that weren't visibly hit, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, they were crashed on the, uh, <laughs> on the war field, yeah. That's awesome, survivor fallacy, that's called. Survivor bi bias. Uh, survivor bias, okay, yeah. cool, I'm gonna check that out, that's awesome. Um, uh, there's plenty of uh, examples in software where people, I can only imagine, because I wasn't involved in the decision-making, were kind of begrudgingly accepted the situation that they're in and they made the change. I can think of two off the top of my head because I have the tabs open here. The first one is um, Google Docs, how it still um, separates by A4 page, um, when I'm sure the majority of Google Docs users don't actually write there in order to print. It's in order to collaborate and consume and all the rest, and I, I did see notice. I did notice about a month ago that they've started a new feature where they'll make it pageless, and it spreads the full width of your screen, and it no longer has pages. But it's taken them what a decade to get there, mm -hmm. um, and that's of course because they had to live in the world that they were currently in, and then slowly migrate people over to the world that they want them to be in, rather than just going straight pageless from the start. Um, and another one is is WhatsApp. There's absolutely no reason uh, that your username should be your telephone number because we're not using any telephone protocol for me to send that message. So you just have a, it's your it's your handle, right? It's your email address, it could be anything. Yep. But people are so familiar with SMS and it was there to replace SMS. So they weren't gonna start giving people a, a little unique username. They were gonna just go with a, a number. Um, a similar thing, like, yeah, it's just kind of, uh, um, uh, keeping the old kind of to slowly transition people to the new. Yep. Uh, the pageless Google Lost thing actually reminds me of Google Wave, a project that they uh, sunsetted quite uh, quite some time ago, which was actually a pageless collaboration uh, document. Something uh, like Miro or something, like a Miro board. No, like it was actually what Google Docs is now with the whole okay. pageless thing. Mm -hmm. uh, because nowadays you can collaborate in the Google Doc, but you couldn't in the past. Mm -mm. Uh, that technology was actually incorporated from Google Wave, which was intended to be what Google Docs is now, a pageless situation where people could just write together in the same document. Ah, cool. Oh, cool. So and it entered the Google graveyard eventually. Uh, like a lot of products. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, but maybe uh, they discovered while they were launching this particular project that, it, uh, that their market wasn't uh, prepared or ready for it yet. Um, and I think that's one of the things we might miss as well in our 
products uh, because our market might not be ready to uh, to fit to to our projects or products. It's also a nice segue into the part where we talked about sunken cost, for example, yeah. where you could learn from your past mistakes. Yeah. Um, where even the term mistake might be a mistake. See what I did there. Um, but if a product fails or if you need to do a new iteration, then it's not lost. You've learned from it. You can grow on top of that. Without that well, failure, if you would, you could never have built a new thing. So it's never a loss. Yeah, it's actually interesting because we always um, admire uh, those self-made people that have failed seven times and passed on the eighth. But when it comes to software, we always expect it to pass the first time. Yep. Um, which is, yeah, not right. That's and I point. think we have all been there, right? Uh, struggling with a particular piece of code, trying to get it work. Um, and yeah it didn't work out and we, we maybe throw it away 10 times and then we just came up with a proper solution and um after a few months of hard work and then you have 10 lines of code solving a particular problem uh and nobody will be aware of all the struggles you had <laughs> uh to just write to come down to this those particular tier 10 lines of code yeah so um two things are that that come to mind when you say this so um uh i think i can imagine i'm not a developer uh, i can imagine that there's a lot of pressure because you've said in the estimation that this was a one pointer and it's yep. now be looking like a five uh -huh. i'm sure you, you've thrown away all your code so how how do you how do you uh, deal with that and could pair programming maybe help in situations like that where you're just first have a sort of a discussion together in, instead of you making those 10 iterations of mistakes? Well, in, in some situations, it does help. In other situations, you're just trying to discover what uh, the best solution will right. be. Like you are designing a particular syste uh, system. Um, I, I, I imagine that uh, when you are designing a particular system, you are making uh, small sketches and, and doing things, uh, throwing them away, oh, yes. uh, put them on the table, yep. uh, discuss it with people, uh, doing all kinds of stuff uh, to just discover the field you are operating in. Yeah. Um, however, in software development, that could be uh, could be more complex in certain situations because well, you're discovering something new that was never built before, uh, or at least you didn't build anything before like that. Yeah, yeah. and a, a spike can help, but I, I can imagine if you're constantly asked your, your estimate on this, and of course there's discussions after everybody yep. gave a one, a two, and a five, um, um, but that uncertainty, I think, is, is overlooked a lot, like the discovery phase of how to build a solution uh, or how to, pro how to approach it. Yeah. Also, the, the question, is this a one or a five, is a non-question. Because if you size this as a one, it means the whole team decided unanimously that they would expect it to be some a one. But uh, things like actual estimations are never about uh, being right or being about giving a correct estimation because that one that turns out to be more work than you would regularly size one is nothing more than a statistical anomaly as the whole calculation of velocity 
And estimates is all about a statistical analysis of what is perceived as a proper forecast. And that means that a one that becomes a five every once in a while, who cares? It's an anomaly. Uh, a, te- a 13 that turns into a five. I've had eights that turns into one-liner because I had this brilliant uh, idea. At least I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, but never mind about that part. Um, but in the end, <laughs> uh, that's also why you count three sprints and where you calculate velocity over large data sets is the law of big numbers, which is a statistical thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, understanding your true velocity over that time as well can sometimes feel like quite a lagging indicator because people try to use you know, the most recent data when really you need uh, a lot more to get a good grasp of it. And then for that needle to move as well takes a little while, which means that not every iteration can be, uh, can you, you know, adopt something and then measure it. Sometimes you're going to have to go through a number of iterations before you're able to to measure the effectiveness of your change. Yeah. Um, When we are talking about estimations, uh, I remember we also talked about um, how to discover the unknown constraints of of, uh, of your operating field. Um, like the hidden complexity well that you were mentioning? Li- like the hidden complexity, but also the, um, how did you call it? Um, the intended complexity and... Um Intentional and accidental yeah, complexities. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, could you elaborate on a bit more on that? Uh, yeah, sure. So if you just think of any software system or any system at all as just intentional or accidental complexity, So um, accidental complexity can be uh, tech debt. So it doesn't need to be purely accidental. It can be intentionally accidental in order to, I know it's getting horrible, (laughs) but in order to, you know, for certain business constraints, you you will sometimes purposefully do it. But if you think of intentional complexity, if you reduce that, what you're doing is you're uh, reducing the features you have on your software. So you cannot reduce intentional complexity without reducing value. Whereas accidental complexity has the exact inverse effect. If you reduce accidental complexity, you increase value, because what you often do is uh, what you often do is impact velocity. So you improve in your velocity or in your quality or any of your various other things uh, that end with a Y. It's really kind of it just helps along the way. So you can divide intentional complexity and you can reduce accidental complexity. Okay, thanks. That makes sense. Yeah, a lot. Uh, that helps me a lot again uh, to, well, actually explain uh, why <laughs> why we should um, really take care of this technical debt part. And that brings me think back to the um, uh, to something Mike announced during the live se- live session, which was. Um, your development sh- uh, team should also be a stakeholder um, on your project. Yeah, and you should also take responsibility as a development team to be a stakeholder. Because a stakeholder is not a role that you get assigned, it's a role that you take uh, when you're working. And as a development team, if you think I have te- I'm amount- I'm surmounting technical debt, we are accruing technical debt, um, please plan it for me. Yeah then it's an interesting question because uh, customers go to the product owner and are not going to say, hey, I want this feature, go plan for me. They say, I want it now. And then the product owner needs to jiggle and wiggle uh, all around the product backlog uh, and 
defined what priority is. But if you as development team are like, hey, we think this is important, uh, but you can say, hey, plan time for random technical depth instead of I want this specific thing, then you're never getting there. But it's, it's a bit of give and take between uh, you as being a stakeholder towards your product owner and your product owner then being able to help you as a similar stakeholder. Yeah, and it's all about, uh, oh, I think we also said that, uh, I think you mentioned that um, the, the, the value that certain technical depth is, is delivering, that if you don't, mm -hmm. um, um, I would say that implement it or build it or develop it or work on it, then you're not adding the value. And have you made sure that your product owner understands the value of that, uh, the business value of all those features that you've postponed to maybe post a 1.0 version of your product. And do you as developer perhaps understand some things don't have value and perhaps shouldn't be on your technical debt list? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It, it's so much like real debt. It's, you know, that's why it has that. But, uh, you know, anything that you ought to buy with a payday loan or a credit card, you should probably often do the right way and wait. But, you know, if I wanted to buy a house without accruing debt, I need another 30 years, according to my mortgage mm -hmm. provider. Um, so there are some areas where it's completely acceptable to steal from the future, kind of steal your time from the future to get that value now. And there are other times where it isn't. And you might have people that always want you to steal from the future because they just care about the results today and, and um, possibly don't have an appreciation of the, the interest rates of a credit card. Um, there will always be that but you just need to kind of develop the relationship, make sure that they're aware of what they're getting themselves in for if you make these shortcuts now, and uh, then you can make a proper decision together. Well, thank you very much um, for being with me tonight. If you like what we are doing uh, with Incubicle Sessions, uh, please become a patron and allow us to continue this, uh, these sessions. I liked it a lot. I hope you did as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely hope to see you uh, next time. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like what we're doing, please share our links on social media. Also, please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app and follow us on YouTube. And you can also support us financially on patreon.com slash ingewikkeld. See you next month.